Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. May 11, 1920 was an unremarkable day in Chicago. The temperature hung around 45 degrees, though the winds made it feel even colder. Jim Colosimo was in no mood for the miserable weather. He had been called into work on what was supposed to be his day off. He'd spent all night on the second floor of Colosimo's cafe, where he gambled heavy and drank heavier before heading home in the early hours of the morning. He'd barely gotten any sleep before he was called back to the restaurant. It was business as usual when Jim arrived. He made some phone calls, greeted the wait staff, and then he walked into the lobby. It was over in an instant. Two loud bangs and it was done. All it took was two flicks of a trigger to turn an unremarkable morning into a day few would forget. The day Chicago's first vice lord was murdered. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. This is our second episode on Jim Colosimo, one of America's first modern kingpins. By the 1910s, Jim's businesses ranged from brothels and opium dens to upscale dining and political lobbying. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Jim Colosimo's rise to power was a surprise to just about everyone besides himself to think of how he'd arrived in the United States. Indigent, alone, unable to speak English, only made his rise all the more remarkable. By 1911, Colosimo's Cafe, Jim's upscale Italian restaurant, had become one of Chicago's hottest eateries. Celebrities and politicians arrived early for the first floor's old-school Italian food, but they stayed until the wee hours of the morning for the gambling and unabashed debauchery that took place upstairs. Jim wasn't a celebrity as we consider them now, but he was damn sure close. Everyone in Chicago knew him. Movie stars, opera singers, state and city politicians. And as Jim's celebrity grew, his interest in his less legitimate enterprises began to wane. He left the running of his criminal empire to his right-hand man, his wife's cousin, John Torrio. Torrio had arrived in Chicago in 1909 to help put an end to the Black Hand's extortion. In the years since, he had come to assume a sizable role in Jim's operations. Torrio had killed for Jim. His loyalty was unmatched by anyone else. 
and Jim wasn't the type to allow loyalty to go unrewarded. In 1909, Jim put John Torrio in charge of turning around the Saratoga, a brothel on Dearborn Street. The brothel's business had been in decline, and it was Torrio's job to save it. Torrio knew that Jim used his more high-class girls for his other, more upscale parlors. The Saratoga was home to the rejects. But Torrio was determined to prove that he was more than just a trusty shot. He had run businesses of his own back in New York, and he knew how to turn a dime into a dollar. Torrio realized that so much of the sex trade wasn't really about the girls, but instead about the presentation. He couldn't sell his girls as upscale, but he could sell them as exactly what they were, girls. The Saratoga housed some of Colosimo's youngest-looking sex workers, and the clients tended to go for the youngest-looking of them still. The women were of age, at least if anyone asked. But if the customers wanted little girls, that's what they'd get. Torrio dressed the ladies in gingham rompers, with sashes tied in giant bows. They wore silk bows in their hair, custom-made to match their high-heeled shoes. He led some of his usual customers inside to show off the new product line. The girls were all lined up like a row of porcelain dolls. As perverse as it was, it worked. Business at the Saratoga boomed. Torrio had proven himself, and Jim took notice drawing him closer into the inner circle. But Torrio's strategy had one major drawback. His girls grew up. After just a couple of years, many of the employees had aged to the point where they could no longer pull off the Saratoga's charade. He needed fresh blood, and for that, he turned to a man by the name of Maurice Van Bever. Van Bever was the operator of a so-called white slavery ring, which lured underage women and transported them across state lines against their will. This was a risky endeavor, since human trafficking was an even more hot-button issue than regular sex work. Not to mention the fact that shipping the girls across state lines made it a federal offense. But Van Bever had all the girls Torio needed, most of them underage. He was willing to take the risk to keep the Saratoga up and running. Jim was kept on a need-to-know basis about the whole operation. He trusted Torrio to bring in the girls, and he never cared to ask where they were coming from. But Jim's willful ignorance would prove short-sighted. Torrio's relationship with Van Bever soon found them all in the crosshairs of the U.S. Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, or as they would later come to be known, the FBI. Sometime in early 1911, the FBI raided a brothel in Bridgeport, Connecticut. One of the women they arrested claimed she had been brought there from Chicago by men named John Torrio and Maurice Van Bever, at the behest of one Jim Colosimo. The investigators could barely believe it, they'd found a witness who could directly implicate a notorious white slaver. Even better, she could help them put away Jim Colosimo, a man whose criminal reputation preceded him even outside of Chicago. All they needed was for this woman to testify, which took some convincing. 
But eventually, she gave in and agreed to testify against all three of her alleged captors. They placed the woman in protective custody in a Connecticut jail. Back in Chicago, the Cooks County State's attorney prepared indictments for Torrio, Van Bever, and Colosimo. If all went according to plan, they'd all be in police custody before they even knew what had hit them. But that was a big if, especially when dealing with men as resourceful as Big Jim Colosimo. First, calls came from a couple of Torrio's contacts in the Chicago Police Department. What was this they were hearing about impending indictments? And who was this witness willing to testify against the vice lord? Torrio was just as confused as the policeman. He knew how badly this could go. Jim and Torrio were family. But how far would family loyalty extend if he found out Torrio had torpedoed his entire criminal empire? Torrio had no intentions of finding out. He put a call in to his old gangster friend from New York, Frankie Yale. Yale put in a few calls to his own East Coast contacts, and within a day, he knew exactly where the FBI's mysterious witness was being held. With that information, Torrio set in motion a plan. Late one afternoon, two men arrived at the Bridgeport City Jail in Connecticut, claiming to be federal agents. They informed the jailers that the FBI's witness was in grave danger, and the only way to ensure her safety was to immediately move her to another location, a secret location they couldn't disclose, especially not to the local jailers. The jailers took some convincing, but the agent's paperwork seemed to be in order. Who were they to question the Justice Department? Paperwork was signed pleasantries exchanged, and in less than an hour, the FBI's only witness was walking out the door. The woman's bullet-riddled body was found in a graveyard the next day. The police eventually identified the two phony federal agents as members of New York's James Street Gang which both Torrio and Frankie Yale shared a history. No charges were brought against the kidnappers. What was the point? Everyone knew that head had come from the top, and without the girl, the feds had no case against Torrio and Colosimo. Almost as fast as the case against the two had materialized, it was gone. No legal consequences would ever come from the woman's murder, despite the FBI's best efforts. But Jim Colosimo was now on the federal radar, and this debacle taught law enforcement an important lesson. If they wanted to bring down the Colosimo criminal empire, they would need more than just a single witness. They would need to hit Jim where it hurt, his wallet. Coming up, we'll look at the biggest threat Jim Colosimo's crime empire ever faced. Now... Back to the story. If the threat of indictment in 1911 had frightened Jim Colosimo, he certainly didn't show it. His brothels, saloons, and gambling houses all continued to thrive, even amid growing pressure from reformers to put an end to Chicago's vice districts. By 1912, John Torrio handled most of the day-to-day running of Colosimo's businesses. 
The indictment scare had driven the two men closer than ever. Jim might have been frustrated by Torrio's getting them mixed up with the white slavery scheme in the first place, but he was impressed with the New Yorker's ability to put the situation to bed just as quickly. With Torrio taking more responsibility over his illicit businesses, Jim started to dream of a world in which he was fully legitimate. He had dreamed of greatness since he first stepped foot in America. Crime had been a means to an end, a necessary step on his path to money and respect. Now, at age 34, he had more than enough of the former and barely any of the latter. Every night at Colosimo's Cafe, he broke bread with a who's who of the local celebrity scene. But he knew they would never respect him as one of their own as long as he was known as the Vice Lord. That's not to say he had any intentions of giving up his brothels and gambling joints entirely. But he envisioned a world in which his only involvement was collecting weekly envelopes full of profits. But any dreams Jim had of legitimacy would be put firmly to bed by the end of that same year. For years, social reformers had been pushing for the eradication of the First Ward's vice district, with little success. Jim Colosimo still controlled most of the political scene, but in 1912, Chicago was changing. Reverend Dwight L. Moody had, for years, been a critic of the Chicago government's hands-off attitude toward the First Ward. In 1912, he issued a direct challenge to State Attorney John Wayman and Chicago Mayor Carter Harrison, Jr. Moody implored the politicians to shut down all vice operations in the First Ward. No more brothels, no more opium parlors, and no more gambling joints. And if Wayman and Harrison wouldn't deliver, then Moody and his supporters promised to replace them with politicians who would. These sort of challenges weren't uncommon for State Attorney Wayman. What was unusual was that Moody had amassed a sizable constituency of voters who agreed with him. This presented a problem for both bathhouse John Coughlin and Michael Hinkydink McKenna, the two aldermen who presided over the First Ward. For years, they had kept the First Ward free from city and state intervention by making sure sizable donations made their way into the right hands. But they couldn't reckon with morally upright politicians who refused to be bribed. Jim Colosimo had an army of immigrant and sex worker voters who kept friendly officials in office. But Moody had amassed a coalition of churchgoers that would prove just as formidable. Never before had Jim and his allies faced such a challenge. Mayor Harrison was up for re-election. If he ignored Moody's demands, he might risk losing his office. But he could hardly imagine the repercussions of making enemies out of Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John, not to mention the Vice Lord himself. Fortunately for Harrison, he wouldn't need to make the decision himself. On October 3, 1912, State Attorney John Wayman released a statement that would strike fear into the hearts of every vice operator in Chicago. In light of growing concerns by certain moral reform groups, he now intended to prosecute every brothel and gambling joint owner in the First Ward. Jim may have assumed Wayman's words were little more than lip service until raids began the very next day. 
Investigators began busting down the doors of just about every business in the first ward. They came in scores, chasing madams, sex workers, pimps, and johns up and down 22nd Street. The raids descended on more than a few of the Colosimo businesses. Every person inside was arrested. They made sure of that. When it was all over, Wayman's raiders had captured 340 people. But as the police processed the arrests, two notable names were absent from the list. Jim Colosimo and John Torrio remained at large. A connection in the local police department had gotten word to them just in time for them to get out of Dodge. Wherever he was hiding, Jim was incensed. Never before had the government issued such a challenge to the sovereign criminal state of the First Ward. To Big Jim Colosimo, this was an act of war. He would respond accordingly. Jim wasted no time in assembling his counterforce. Early the next morning, less than 12 hours after the raids, he opened the doors of his restaurant to the Levy Committee, a group of prominent First Ward vice operators. Much confusion still remained about what had happened the night before. For all the money they paid in political donations, they could have at least been given some sort of notice. Sure, Wayman had publicly promised to clean up the vice district, but what Illinois politician hadn't? Promises were aplenty. Rare was the man who actually gave it a try. By the end of their meeting, one thing was clear. Whatever protection bathhouse John and Hinky Dink McKenna had once afforded them was now gone. They were on their own. Then came the plan. The group sought to raise $40,000, just over a million in today's dollars, to fund their effort against Wayman. They planned to collect from saloon owners, resort operators, and madams all around the First Ward, as soon as they were released from the city jail, that is. But this would take time the committee didn't have. They had already lost a Friday night's worth of profits. They couldn't wait around for the arrested vice operators to be released from jail. They needed a plan now. If Wayman and his reformers wanted so badly to take the vice out of the vice district, then Jim would bring the vice to their doorsteps. Every sex worker in the neighborhood was ordered to put on their loudest clothing and most elaborate makeup. Then, they were dropped off in the city's upper-class neighborhoods where they were to knock on every door asking to rent a room. The idea was simple. Show the good people of Chicago what they'd been missing in the first ward. The girls knocked and waited. It was unusual for them to have to walk this long in heels, and after a few hours, their feet were starting to feel the punishment. But the horrified expressions on the other side of the door made the blisters more than worth it. The housewives answering the doors were aghast at the sight of these painted ladies at their doorsteps. They may have supported shutting down the vice district, but they hadn't thought about what would happen afterwards. Without the first ward, the vice would be scattered into their own neighborhoods. The door-to-door campaign lasted two days before the politicians at City Hall finally demanded that the girls leave the city's God-fearing residents alone. Jim and the committee agreed, so long as John Wayman left their brothels alone, too. City officials said that they'd see what they could do, but what they could do turned out to be very little. 
Wayman's raids continued until the turn of the new year in 1913, when Wayman announced that he would not seek re-election as state's attorney. Instead, he had his eyes set on an even higher prize, governor. The crusade against Jim Colosimo was far from over. With Wayman's attention turned elsewhere, Mayor Harrison was all too happy to take up his mantle. Big Jim had once been untouchable because of his political power. He controlled thousands of voters, and he wasn't afraid to remind local officials about it. But Mayor Harrison had the support of Chicago's church-going voters. They were a larger voting bloc, a louder movement, and they wanted the vice district gone. Harrison enlisted former U.S. Secret Service agent William Dannenberg as chief of Chicago's new moral squad, a team put together for the sole purpose of weeding out corruption and bringing an end to the city's sex and gambling trades. Over the next 12 months, Dannenberg and his team of investigators made countless raids on the First Ward's brothels and gambling joints. Jim's criminal business interests were diverse enough that he was able to weather the storm, but he didn't know how long that would last. There was some feeling that the best way to fight the onslaught was with patience. This sort of incessant inconvenience was unfortunate, but the vice district had been around a long time and would almost certainly outlast these raids. It went on this way for an entire year. But on January 8, 1914, Jim finally reached his breaking point. Dannenberg and his team raided one of Jim's many resorts, the Rheingold Saloon and Cafe, arresting ten women and seven men. Among them was none other than Jim's right hand, John Torrio. It was one thing to mess with his businesses, but now Dannenberg had arrested a member of Jim's family. Blood was in the water, and Jim Colosimo was faced with the question of whether to reason with the sharks or to kill them once and for all. Coming up, Jim's war against the state government will claim its first casualties. Now back to the story. By the beginning of 1914, Chicago's Moral Squad had been terrorizing the First Ward's vice district for an entire year. The chief investigator, William Dannenberg, was proving a formidable foe against the city's crime lords. But on January 8th, he made a fatal mistake. He arrested Jim Colosimo's right-hand man, John Torrio. Torrio was released soon enough, but that wasn't Jim's problem. Arresting Torrio in the first place was an insult to his power. Once again, he called the First Ward's most powerful vice lords to a meeting at his restaurant. Something had to be done about William Dannenberg. After much contentious debate, the committee came to an agreement. They would offer Dannenberg a bribe. If that didn't work, the committee agreed that they would do what needed to be done, even if that meant murdering him. The vice bosses recruited the help of Harry Cullett, a former police detective who had long been involved with protecting their rackets. Cullett arranged a meeting with Dannenberg at a nearby drugstore. When Dannenberg got there, he immediately asked why he'd been summoned. Cullett shushed him and walked outside. Dannenberg followed Cullett out the door into an alley behind the store. 
There, Cullet revealed the plan. The vice lords would pay Dannenberg $2,200 a month, worth roughly $58,000 today. Each day, Dannenberg would be provided with a list of fall houses for sham raids. They'd be allowed to arrest two women at each of these locations every day, so it looked as if the raids were still going on as intended. Much to Cullet's surprise, Dannenberg agreed without any negotiation. Cullet handed over an envelope filled with $500 in cash and promised another thousand by the end of the month. Cullet didn't notice the investigators watching from behind a nearby bush. He struggled to hide his shock when a man with a camera leapt from the bushes and rushed towards him. Moral squad investigators converged from all angles. There was nowhere to run. Reporters snapped pictures as the investigators slapped the cuffs across the former detective's wrists. Jim's attempt at a peaceful resolution had failed. Now the stage was set for violence, bloodshed, murder. On July 16, 1914, three cops from the 22nd Street Station received a warning from their vice-linked sources. Stay off the streets tonight. Something is going to happen. Dannenberg and his crew of investigators didn't receive the message. It was business as usual as they poured out of their police wagons at the First Ward drugstore at close to 9 o'clock. Their plan for the night was to lead a series of raids along 22nd Street. The first raid went without a hitch. Four of the investigators busted one of Jim and Torrio's sex parlors in a matter of minutes. Jim and Torrio had only just left, likely after being tipped off by the locals. When the investigators began to shepherd their arrests out into the police wagon, they found a raucous crowd gathered outside the brothel. Onlookers hurled insults, curses, and even glass bottles at the detectives as they moved. One observer even tossed a brick at the detectives, narrowly missing his target. Two detectives converged on the brick thrower, but just as they closed in, the man pulled out a pistol and fired three shots. A bullet struck one of the detectives in the hip. He took cover, then returned fire. The mysterious shooter fired another four shots before disappearing into the crowd. Two local Chicago PD officers, Sergeant Burns and Detective Sloop, heard the gunfire from the 22nd Street Station and rushed to the scene. They saw the wounded investigators firing gunshots from behind a parked car but neither officer recognized the shooters as Dannenberg's investigators. Burns and Sloop charged forward, firing their own revolvers as they ran. The two moral squad investigators feared they'd walked into a trap. At the sight of the two officers charging them, one of the investigators rattled off six shots, striking Sergeant Burns in the heart and sending him crumbling into the gutter. The other investigator panicked. He sprinted out into the street and hopped onto the back of a passing motorcycle. He screamed, Drive for God's sakes! Get out of this! The driver slammed onto the accelerator. Detective Sloop took aim at the motorcycle driver and fired. He missed, but the driver lost control, sending the bike crashing into a car. When the smoke cleared, four lawmen had been shot and one of them killed. It didn't matter that most of the carnage had been caused by a police-on-police -police shootout. 
No, the papers, the police, and City Hall were all focused on a different matter. Who was the mystery gunman who started all this? Jim Colosimo was terrified, though he'd never show it. He had needed to try and kill Dannenberg, but the plan had gone to pieces. Dannenberg was still breathing, and a local police officer was dead. The shooter's identity was never determined, but the police were able to figure out who he most likely worked for. On Monday, July 20th, 1914, investigators finally showed up at Colosimo's cafe looking for answers. Jim dodged the questions with ease. He had had nothing to do with the poor sergeant's death, though he expressed condolences for the family. Perhaps if the state was looking to place blame, it should be on themselves for bringing such violence to the first ward. The investigators were not amused. To Jim's astonishment, they arrested him on charges of withholding information. He was marched out of his own restaurant in handcuffs. Jim spent the night in a jail cell. In all his 36 years of life, he had never seen himself here, sitting behind bars like a common criminal. He swore to himself, once he was out, they would never put Big Jim Colosimo in a cage again. The next day, the Chicago Tribune's front page headline read, Colosimo in a Cell. It sent a troubling message to Chicago's underworld. The once untouchable were no longer so. Jim was out on bail by the following day, but his face had been on the cover of Chicago's two most widely circulated papers. He had welcomed the celebrity afforded to him by his restaurant, but this was something else entirely. He was notorious now, a crook in the eyes of the entire city. His hopes of respect and legitimacy were now gone. The charges against Jim Colosimo were eventually dropped. But by 1915, less than a year after his arrest, the First Ward's vice district was finally closed. All of Jim's First Ward brothels shuttered. Many vice operators were entirely put out of business. But Jim and John Torrio were smarter than that. They knew opportunity awaited outside of the city limits. As they'd threatened once before, Shutting down the vice district only meant scattering the vice elsewhere. Jim and Torrio quickly expanded their empire into the suburbs, opening illegal roadhouses, brothels, and roadside casinos that more than made up for the money he'd lost in the first ward. And after the vice district was closed, the city's interest in Jim and his businesses wavered. They'd won their public victory, and the powers that be saw no real benefit in continuing to pursue Jim Colosimo. Throughout the late 1910s, Jim and Torrio built up their suburban business interests, free from legal scrutiny they'd faced in the city. Jim now saw the Colosimo empire extending its tendrils across all of suburban Illinois. By 1920, Jim and John Torrio had worked together for close to a decade, but resentment was starting to seep into their partnership. For years, Jim had enjoyed the company of women outside of his marriage. Torrio knew about this. Working with the girls as much as they did, it wasn't unusual for a vice operator to sample his own product. But recently, Jim had fallen for a stunning young woman by the name of Dale Winter who often sang at Colosimo's cafe. Torrio was willing to accept a lot, 
But when Jim divorced his wife Victoria and married Winter in 1919, Torrio could no longer hide his disapproval. Torrio was Roman Catholic. He didn't believe in divorce, least of all within his own family. After all, Victoria was his cousin. But he was in too deep with the Colosimo organization to leave now over such a petty personal squabble. As spring turned to summer in 1920, Torrio pitched Jim on a plan to further their already vast empire. Prohibition had begun. Torrio had heard word on the street of the money bootleggers were making, and he wanted in. Jim rejected the pitch out of hand. Bootlegging might be big business, but he had no interest in getting involved in it. He was satisfied with the way things were already. Torrio was outraged. To him, this was pure short-sightedness. As long as Jim remained in charge, the Colosimo Empire was going to fall behind and get swallowed up. He had a choice to make. Betray his partner of nearly a decade for a shot at the fortune bootlegging would bring, or allow Jim's waning interest to destroy everything they'd built. For counsel, he turned to his protege, a 20-year-old hood by the name of Al Capone. Capone had moved out to Chicago just a year earlier. In that time, the two men had grown close. Torrio saw something of himself in Capone, a New York gangster with a propensity for violence and a mind for good business. By the conclusion of their conversation, Torrio's mind was made up. Jim Colosimo's time was over. He called up Frankie Yale, the same man who had helped him take care of the witness in Connecticut years earlier. Yale arrived by train just days later. Torrio told him where to be and when. All he needed to do was pull the trigger and let the chips fall where they may. Jim was none too pleased about getting called into the restaurant on May 11, 1920. It was supposed to be his day off. But Torrio said an important shipment was coming in that Jim needed to pay for, some sort of expensive whiskey the regulars would love. Jim said hello to the waitstaff and retired to his office to make a few phone calls. Fifteen minutes later, Jim stepped out of his office and into the main foyer. Jim had barely made it through the doorway before two bullets tore through the back of his head, killing him instantly. The shooter was long gone by the time the employees discovered the body. At just 42 years old, Jim Colosimo was dead. Jim's death marked the end of an era. He had been the first in Chicago to incorporate crime and politics, to consolidate power in a way that so many crime lords after him could only aspire to. In the years that followed, John Torrio and his protege, Al Capone, used the vast Colosimo empire as the foundation for what would come to be the biggest organized crime family in Chicago history, the so-called Chicago Outfit. The Chicago Outfit would go on to rule Chicago for the next hundred years. First run by Torrio and then by Capone, the outfit grew exponentially during Prohibition, becoming perhaps the most notorious alcohol distributor in the country. Torrio got everything he wanted. He escaped the shadow of his longtime friend and mentor. He cashed in on Prohibition, just as Jim had refused to allow him to do. 
and built an organized crime syndicate that remains active nearly a hundred years later. John Torrio had toppled a titan, and in doing so, he brought the city of Chicago together to mourn in a way it had never done before. On the day of Jim Colosimo's funeral, the streets were filled with thousands of mourners and well-wishers. In life, he had united the city's diverse population at his restaurant, his brothels, and his gambling joints. Now he counted congressmen, crooks, judges, and barmaids among his pallbearers. They came together now, as they did then, to send off Chicago's first vice lord with a funeral meant for a king. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Daniel Ocho and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.